One of the things the Rambam says in, in the laws of Tshuva, which completely reframes our experience of how we interact with our environment, our challenges, and our life. And it's in the fifth chapter. So the Rambam in the fifth chapter of the laws of Tshuva. And we've discussed that the notion of Tshuva shouldn't be associated with the English word repentance because once translated, the words create connotations which are disruptive and disassociate us from the meaning behind the concept in the spiritual realm of Torah. So don't think of Tshuva as repentance or penitence because it has a Christological implication which we'd like to avoid. Tshuva means getting back to. It means return. In order for a return to occur, it must mean that it's a destination which was previously known, previously visited, previously inhabited, and now we're returning to that same point. This is a counterintuitive understanding of when you speak about the experience and the mechanics of what occurred and what happens through the tshuva process, it seems an inaccurate description. What is the tshuva process? Throughout our lives, we make decisions, some good, some bad. Some decisions are destructive to ourselves and to others, and some decisions are productive for ourselves and others. In a spectrum of my life, and I do an introspection, I do an overview, a reckoning of looking back and thinking about the destructive things I've done and the constructive things I've done, I need to be able to have a mechanism of dealing with those, both those disparate components. I look back on all the good stuff I did, all the bad stuff I did, and I have to be able to deal with it. Very often, in the tshuva process, this kind of return to a different state of being, people overlook the good stuff. But if we are reevaluating, the good stuff comes underneath the same scrutiny as the bad stuff. Because the ultimate question is, what's going on in my life? And is my internal self, is the greatness of being, the power that lies within, being realized and actualized? Or is it becoming dormant and distracted, hijacked by other forces within me, which create a discord between the inner and the outer? The word for discord in Hebrew or misalignment is the word chait. Now you recognize that translating the word chait as sin is an aberration to its meaning. Sin has some connotation of you're a bad, evil, tainted individual. Chait has a connotation of you have an internal rhythm that's beating within you. And when that rhythm is disrupted, there's a misalignment. You have an internal energy that's vibrating. And when that energy and your external actions are coherent, there's a resonance. Resonance means the relationship between, for example, the strumming of a string of a guitar vibrating at the same frequency as the wood behind it. And that's what creates the music. When there's no resonance, so then that creates a discord, there's no harmony, things don't work. The goal of life is to be able to live harmoniously, which means that my inner spiritual world 
is met with my outer actions and the two are married together. Chait means that when my inner world meets my outer world, they are strangers to each other. My inner world is a resource of kindness. If I have a resource of kindness within and I act in a way which is cruel and unkind, when the action of the cruelty meets the inner world of kindness, they have seemingly no connection. Boom! A misalignment has occurred. Hate has disrupted the resonance of inner energy with outward action. I'm going to go even one step further. And this is a quote taken from a Kabbalistic work known as the Tomer Dvorah, which means the palm tree of Dvorah. And in that work, he starts off with an astounding, somewhat bombastic statement. He says the following thing, Reb Moshe Cordovero, a colleague of the Arizal, one of the greatest Kabbalists in the city of Tzfat, says the following thing. Since we look like Hashem in the way our anatomy is structured, since our bodies look like God, we should behave like Him too. When I read those lines, I was a little bit uh, perplexed. I actually, I look like God? Isn't that heretical? It sounds like something that shouldn't be allowed to be said. We as a religion are the founders of monotheism, affirming the fact that there's no corporeal, bodily component to the unifying energy which inhabits the world in all its molecular structure. And then we have a foremost, foremost Kabbalist stating that, well, your body looks like God. God looks just like a human anatomy. Seems ridiculous, seems bizarre. And then he goes on and he says, reasoning by pulling out his Talmudic thumb, he says like this, oh, if you look like Hashem and you don't behave like Hashem, people will say, Whoa! Look at this guy! He looks like God and he doesn't behave like God. That is so deceitful. If he looks, if he is the part, he should play the part. So first of all, let's backtrack. It's not so simple that we don't look like God, is it? Because the verse in Beratius, in the beginning of the narrative, the Genesis story, it says like this, a man was created. It was breathed into the breath of life. But before it says, We will make, we'll make man in our image. Which seemingly means man looks like God. So I want to perhaps use an opportunity to explain something which is fundamental to our spiritual system. We have a problem. I mean, we have many problems. Just think about my problems would <laughs> take up a library. But apart from my own personal problems and issues and stuff, which there's no shortage of, there's a fundamental problem with humanity. See, Amos, man is a finite creature. If you've noticed, I'm only taking up a very defined point of space. Imagine if I took up the whole room. My body just... 
an amorphous mass infiltrating every molecule in the air. It would be awful. Awful, probably uncomfortable. But it could probably do wonders for my backache. But I have a very strong, there's a point of a beginning and end of me physically. My brain, my mind, my thoughts also have beginnings and ends. In fact, my entire thought process is a structured thing. It's based on cause and effect. There are limitations and parameters within which I think. Very often associated with language. I cannot grasp a notion of something which does not have cause and effect. Which is why the believer is struck with the same mental short circuit as the atheist. If I go up to an atheist and say, <laughs> tell me, sir, how did the world begin? He'd say, well, have you never heard of the Big Bang? And then I would pull out my Talmudic thumb. <laughs> and with a swift movement to the right from the hip, switch, backward plunge, I'd say, Who made the Big Bang Bang, buddy? <laughs> and at that point in time, there'd be this kind of, uh, 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 oh, it was gases, and who made the gases, and you get stuck. Because you can't grasp with a system where there's no cause and effect. Our brains don't go there. You see, our brains are limited. They have a bandwidth. Our hearing has a bandwidth. We can't hear certain frequencies. Our nose has a bandwidth. We can't smell certain smells, which could be an advantage when you're living with men. <laughs> Our eyes have a bandwidth. We can't see certain colors and certain distances. So every part of our physical and mental structure has a point where it stops. And it can't go beyond that point. It's narrow, it's limited. If only for that idea you came today, it would have been worthwhile. Because, unfortunately, we have become intoxicated by the allure of technology, which gives us the illusion that we are all-powerful, all-thinking, and all-knowing. We are very, 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 very limited in how far we can go with rational thought. And therefore, since the human existence is so narrow, so far from the infinite, cannot grasp anything about the infinite, how in the world can we have a spiritual structure that supports a relationship between a mortal finite being and an infinite and immortal one? There's literally no overlap. What do we do? How do we get this limited, minuscule creation to relate to this incomprehensible creator? How do you create that synergy? How do you create the connection? How do you create that <coughs> fusion? Problem. Solution. In the creative process, it's not only the physical world that was created. A parallel spiritual world was created. The spiritual world has a component of a higher dimension but yet follows the structures of rational thought and therefore it can become fathomable 
And through that interface, we can travel upwards until we can approximate a connection with the, inter- the ultimate and the divine and the infinite. And this spiritual world is extremely complex, multiple, multiple, multiple layers upon layers upon layers, higher and higher and higher levels. And by traversing landscape after landscape in that spiritual world, by ascending rung after rung of the spiritual ladder, we can start to develop a very powerful connection to something which otherwise would be beyond the realm of our capacity to connect to. Spiritual world. How is the spiritual world structured? The spiritual world is structured in a manner that the divine can be grasped through its interaction within the observable world. We can look at the way the world works and we can find traces and evidence to the existence of a manipulation of cause and effect within the physical world. We can smell, sniff, and feel that the world as a physical entity has a component which is unseen, and that can be driving the engine. And that interaction between the physical and the uh, metaphysical world becomes a resource for us to connect and to travel the distance between these two disparate universes. That sounded extremely meaningless. <laughs> too many big words in too little time. Let's chunk it down. Like this. And this is why it sells, this is actually why the, 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 the emphasis, you know, who knows more and who's like more aware of Egypt than Jews? The ancient Egyptians are long gone. The only reason Egypt in its ancient context is alive as a culture is because of the Jews. We keep on bringing it back. We are Egypt obsessed. There's never been a nation who's been way more obsessed than the Egyptians about Egypt. Think about this. Every morning, you have got one thing you need to do. You're many things you need to do. One of the things you need to do is remember that as a nation, 3,000 years ago, we left Egypt. In case you forget, you then have a piece of spiritual apparatus perfectly designed to coordinate this memory. It's called phylacteries. Phylacteries is a, a phylactery. A phylactery sounds like a factory with a lit in the middle. A phylactery is nothing like a factory. Phylacteries are different. They're made of leather, black. Black as sable. Square as the squarest cube. Powerful as the most powerful knight. Film! Twilling, yeah, twilling. Okay, take the twilling. Put one here. In the twilling it says, Remember, my friends, you left Egypt. Put another one here. Good thing it's hollow. Put another one here. On where the fontanelle once used to live. People, unfortunately, suffer from the pollution of follicle obstruction. Don't know how to locate that divine spot. For me, my friends, it is simple and straightforward. You take that feeling and you slam on here. Why? Because you have to see through Egypt. You have to act 
through Egypt. You have to connect. T- t- you have to feel. You have to be an Egyptian thinker, an Egyptian doer, an Egyptian feeler. What does it mean to me, Egyptian doer, Egyptian feeler? Does this mean that I have to start building pyramids in my backyard? Heavens no. It means as follows. That the exodus from Egypt crystallizes this buffer zone where there's a divine, a metaphysical, and a physical. Because what happened in the events which precipitated the exodus was a complete and total sabotaging of every single natural law. Water is a transparent liquid which flows. Blood is not. You go to the river and within seconds, as you're sitting there fishing for your Nile perch along the banks of the river Nile, you cast your rod and as you're about to reel it in, Something smells a little bit off. And you look ahead, and there's something wrong with the way the water is looking. It's red. And you think, well, maybe there's some kind of mud that's been churned up from the bottom of the bed of the river. So you go closer, and you touch it. And it's eerily warm. And you smell it. And you're shocked because it smells just like blood and you taste it and you recognize it's blood and then you look and you start to see on the surface of the river dead fish floating and as that little Egyptian fisherman starts to comprehend something insane is going on over here and he becomes gripped by panic as his only source of livelihood has been murdered and is bleeding to death. The river, the god of Egypt, lies wounded and mutilated and instead of exuding the life-giving water, it instead bleeds the blood of death. That's traumatic. It's traumatic, and many Egyptians got traumatized by that. Um, so from blood all the way, all the way through, all the way through to the final, final metaphysical intervention with the expectant cause and effect of the natural world. There it was, 5 to 12, on the 15th of Nisan, over 3,000 years ago, and there was a group of Egyptian youngsters playing a game of sheshbesh with cockroaches. Golden. That was their fun. And it's like 5 to 12 and they heard there's this kind of like this Jewish prophet that says they're all going to die. <laughs> the Jewish guy says they're all going to die. And there's like three of them are firstborns and then there's a couple of sisters hanging around in the background and like a young guy and they're all looking and they're playing sheshbesh and it's it's like, you know, one minute to 12. And they're all like chilling, sipping arak. And the clock strikes 12. And there's 10 people in the room. Five of them are firstborns. They all drop dead on the spot. Dead. Dead. The little girl, her name's Fatima, runs out of the house. Goes next door, thinking, whoa, this is weird. Same thing. Dead. 
There's a panic. There's a roar. There's a screaming in Egypt. What happened? This is what happened. Until that point in history, people may have had an illusion that the reason why hearts beat is because the anatomy, the physiology of humankind is structured in such a way that that pulsating organ beats relentlessly. Egypt completely refashioned our perception of the pulse of life and redefined it as the reason why the hearts beat is because there's a divine instruction, a metaphysical intervention which says beat, 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 beat. And then for one second, the instruction changed and said, stop, no more beating, dead. The point of Egypt wasn't to recognize that there are miracles. It was rather to recognize there is no such thing as nature. Nature is an illusion that through... (laughs) Maybe speaking a little about the plague of frogs. Just got our guy to take care of them. They're creeping in, make it more real. Nature, then. And all, all, like, we lost the drama there. I'm going to try to build it up again. I don't know if we can. Let's try. <laughs> try. It's going to be a hard one. Egypt wasn't about miracles. Thank you. No, it wasn't, it wasn't the content. It the was like. Shash, man. It wasn't. It was, <laughs> the point of Egypt. Make sure, guys, your phones are off. I don't want any more like croaking. This could be literally, and if we could do this twice. The point of Egypt wasn't to realize that miracles can happen, but rather that there is no such thing as nature. Nature is the most phenomenal smokescreen ever invented. Through its repetitious patterning, we start to fall into the illusion that the cause and effect of the natural world is an unbreakable one. Mm -mm. It's all a trick to lead us to be able to choose and perhaps err in the ever-present manifestation of a spiritual power. Were nature to be sabotaged at every second and everything I did wrong would have immediate consequence in the natural world, I would lose any sense of freedom of choice. The smokescreen and camouflage of nature creates space for me to doubt, space for me to question, space for me to say, maybe there isn't such a thing as a God. And that space also allows me the penetrating, perspicacious power to recognize that beneath the surface there is a higher form generating the patterning and that higher form could break it in a millisecond. And that's why every morning I remember Egypt. I put it on my head, put it on my arm, put it in my heart because in order for me to have a reference point, an anchor to that experience, I have to, it's fresh. I have to remember it twice a day. I have to put on tefillin. I have to put a mezuzah on my door. 
have to remember it through Shabbat, through Shavuot, through Sukkot, especially through Pesach. And that alive notion, that spiritual heritage that we carry from generation to generation is because this allows us eyes to see, ears to hear, a nose to smell, and recognize that the physical world is merely a smokescreen that we can penetrate and through it ascend to a higher level of consciousness. And recognition that what appears to be cause and effect is only an unadulterated will of a divine power that's running the show. And when I make that transition, I get first point access to what's going on. And then I recognize that the way the world moves in terms of geography and history is not that the world is moving on some kind of automaton, some kind of autopilot system. No, it's purposely and specifically designed at each and every point to behave in a particular manner. And the way that the world is moved is because there's a divine body orchestrating. So, for example, words like in Egypt are used are, you see the hand of Hashem, you see the finger, you see the eyes, you can hear the voice. Those are all human attributes. Why is the human anatomy a duplicate of the divine? Because... A hand that I hold in front of me is not a piece of flesh-covered muscle and bone. If I can extract the concept of a hand, it's the power to influence and move things in my world. The ultimate hand is not limited to five fingers and a width and a length. The ultimate hand is a spiritual power that can do the reality of what my little hand has a very weak effect to do. So actually, this is just an analogy. This is a marshal. This is a parable to what a real hand is. Yeah, this is a, this is what, this is, this is a concretization of what the power of a hand is. Eyes are the ability to be aware of the environment around me. Real eyes can see in the future, back to the past, can see into the hearts of each and every one of us. My eyes are a a kind of a, a very loose analogy to what an eye is. So every single part of my body is actually a physical manifestation of the way that Hashem interacts with the world. And I can actually get a sense of the divine through the material. By the way I look, I can understand what it means to be watched. By the way I listen, I can understand what it means to be heard by Hashem. By the way I walk, I can understand what it means that there's a walking of Hashem through history. By the way I use my hands, I can understand how divine providence works. So my body becomes a reservoir and a resource to understand to access, to start to send the rungs of divine comprehension. And each and every part of my body has a parallel in the metaphysical world. And therefore my body, as it were, looks just like Hashem. It's a sculpture, it's a a manifestation, a concretization of all the divine powers in one physical form. And since in my physical form I represent the divine, also in the way I use that powerful vehicle called my body, my hands, my senses, 
should also be akin to the divine. And my eyes should look at the world with kindness and compassion. And my mouth should speak truth and positivity. And my ears should listen to the cries of the innocent to defend them, and my hands should rescue them from their oppressors. And when I'm doing that, I am enacting in my here and now life the divine. And people look at me and they say, whoa, he's amazing. The amazingness of him is because there's a recognition that there's a transcendence, something larger than life. We hail as our heroes people that break all the laws of nature. Because that's give us an insight to the divine. When in the freezing cold, I dive into a polluted river to save a small child, I become a hero. Because it's the last thing in the world that is connected to my material body. And it's the most thing in the world that defines the, that defines the divine mercy upon the helpless and the suffering. You with me? So therefore... Going back, going back, going back. Tshuva is essentially a return to a completely and radically different perspective of not only our internal spiritual structure, but our external bodies. And we're trying to create a resonance, a coherence, that the body and the soul become intimately in rhythm with each other. And my mouth says the thing that my deep, pureful, pure soul suggests. And my head thinks the thoughts that the soul allows. And my actions are manifestations of purity, kindness, goodness, tenacity, power, self-mastery. And when a person recognizes that there's a sense of a return to a more solid state of reality and being. Chuva is a reclaiming of the greatness of what it means to be a Jew. Chuva is there something we all From those of you who are old and to those of you who are new. From those of you who prefer sushi to those of you who love a challenge stew. You have to realize the way forward is to see that when body and soul can be together locked in the embrace, we will ultimately win the Chavares. Thank you, James.